0: Hello, I'm Richard Lee. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. You can find out how they can help you build your own website at squarespace.com. The Guardian.
1: I thought, wow, what a great idea for a murder mystery.
0: Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast. This week we're investigating our fascination with the world of crime in fact and fiction. We talk to the best-selling novelist Donna Leon, get the lowdown from an indefatigable chronicler of noir, and shoot the breeze with a writer who has made a career out of consorting with real-life criminals. I
2: once saw him in a pub where I was meeting him, and he was reading Virginia Woolf's To The Lighthouse. And I mentioned this to another, who's still alive, so I won't mention his name, bank robber, and uh, I said, oh, I saw Bobby King in the pub the other day. He was reading Virginia Woolf's To The Lighthouse. And he said, hmm, not her best. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the day, crime reporting was a real grind. They worked out that the average crime reporter drank eight pints a day, part of the job. You Um, look
3: surprisingly well, (laughs) (laughs) Duncan.
0: But readers seem to have an inexhaustible appetite for villainy and murder. Hate is a bottomless pit. I will pour and pour. This week's inquiry begins very close to home. The author of two crime novels as well as numerous studies of the underworld, Duncan Campbell is a former crime correspondent for The Guardian. His latest book is a history of crime reporting in the UK. Barry Forshaw is a walking encyclopedia of crime fiction who follows his anatomies of Nordic Noir and Euro Noir with his latest study, Brit Noir. When Claire Armidstead brought them into the studio for questioning, she began by asking them to separate fact from fiction.
3: Duncan, there's a very strong relationship between crime fact and crime fiction, isn't there? In a certain sense, all crime reporting is the creation of stories.
2: Yes, you're you're absolutely right. And I think there is a fascination both amongst criminals and amongst police officers with fictional crime as well. They kind of see themselves playing the part of either the the master criminal or the uh, super detective, the super sleuth. And so I think it's often struck me that when you're covering a trial or a crime, it's it's very similar to what one might have read in crime fiction.
3: And even if you take those adjectives that are attached to criminals, like mad Frank Fraser, you, you make a point about the usefulness for certain criminals of having words like mad attached to their name.
2: Yes, there were a lot of mad ones. There were M- mad Teddy Smith and Frank the Mad Axeman, Mitchell and, and so on. And it was a very handy name to have. And I think almost all... Famous criminals got a nickname attached, sometimes that they didn't want. Peter Scott, who was a famous cat burglar, was often called a master criminal, and he, king of the cat burglars and so on. And he used to say, uh, well, I'm more of a master idiot than a master criminal because he ended up spending so much time in behind bars.
3: And were these nicknames made up by the criminals themselves or no, by then, the crime reporting? For usually
2: thinking? quite often by the crime reporters or by the police. And some of them were very... Tortuous, led like Wally Probin, who was Angel Face Probin in the 1950s. He was a great escaper. He escaped, I think, 19 times from prisons. And the police tried to call him the Hoxton Houdini, but it never caught on. But I noticed that you referred to the Hatton Garden burglary that took place. Brian Reader, who was one of the people involved in it, is now described as the master, based on some of his. Co defendants having a jokey conversation about him and saying, hey, He's a master criminal, he's a, the master. This then got taken up by the prosecution in the case and then reported in the press, and he's now forever the master.
3: In your book, the Hatton Garden burglary comes late on in it because it's yes. one of the most recent things. There's a certain nostalgia, you say, for the golden age of crime, that this is the end of an era, old-fashioned crime, in which walls were drilled through, nobody got hurt.
2: Yes, it's similar in, in some ways, apart from the fact that Jack Mills, the train driver, got whacked on the head, it's similar in, in some ways to the great train robbery. The level of planning and the fact that They were old school in that they didn't rat on each other, which was very odd about the Great Train Robbery. And it's now become, since the 1970s, it's quite typical for professional criminals to rat on each other and to break the 11th commandment of thou shalt not grass. So that was why it was very much like an old style of crime.
3: Your book goes right the way back to the beginning of crime writing and you trace it back to the the 17th century, the middle of the 17th century.
2: Yes, it's likely uh, selective in, in some ways, but the first person that I found who was actually making a living by writing regularly about crime was somebody called the Ordinary of Newgate, who was the chaplain at Newgate Prison. His job was, as people were about to be hanged, often for quite minor offences, a minor theft or something. He would interview them. They would usually ask for repentance and so on so that it had a good ending as far as he was concerned. And then that would be published. And then they became best sellers and they sold so well that various pirated versions would appear written without the knowledge of, of the prisoner. Or sometimes the prisoner would do a deal, as Jack Shepard, the great escaper did, would do a deal with another publisher so that his widow would be looked after or his ex-girlfriend would be looked after like that. And those reports were credited with increasing literacy in Britain because people were so fascinated by the deeds of highwaymen and escapers and famous murderers and so on, that they wanted to be able to read it for themselves.
3: That is a really important point, isn't it, Barry, that actually mass reading has been associated with crime and still is. More people read a James Patterson novel than would read an Ian McEwan novel or indeed any literary novel.
4: It's a good point and to carry on with what Duncan was saying about criminals' own attitude to their own self-image You'll find in a lot of crime fiction now and on television, there is this awareness of the genre. So a show like The Sopranos is built around the fact that everyone knows The Godfather, and their lives are all lived by this template of The Godfather, although they're more kind of down market. But yes, you're right, a lot of people read crime who read nothing else. So it does continue to raise levels of literacy, one has to say.
3: Going again right back to the beginning, would you say that Daniel Defoe, obviously in some respects, wrote the first crime novel, he wrote Mole Flanders, about a pickpocket?
2: Yes, that's right. And he wrote quite a lot of stuff anonymously. It's attributed to him, so we can't be 100% sure. And he was also a, somebody who went to prison himself and therefore had an inside knowledge of stuff.
3: But he didn't go to prison for a crime, was no, it? No,
2: he didn't, no. But he at least he'd been behind bars. And just to pick up on Barry's point about the Sopranos and the Godfather, at Ronnie Cray's funeral, I noticed that all the the men came forward and kissed Reggie Cray, who was burying his brother. And before the Godfather, before everyone had seen Italians embracing men, embracing men, that would never have happened. But they had seen a good funeral scene in the Godfather, and it was kind of
4: Replayed at the Cray's funerals. Isn't it interesting also about the Defoe you mentioned that wasn't Marl Flanders considered to be reportage? Yes. There was a theory that this isn't really fiction. Of course, this is about a real woman who is a prostitute and a pickpocket. That was before the concert of the novel had taken hold. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So she was, she was actually a completely fictional character, was she? Because I think no, some people was, uh, still doubt that. Yes, it, I, don't th-
4: they? I think based
2: on a real character at the time. And in fact, we were talking about The Ordinary, first of all. She appears, The Ordinary appears in Maul Flanders. And Maul Flanders is very rude about him because he's he come to see her because he wants to make some money. So uh, The Ordinary was already a kind of character who appeared in fiction in a rather
4: derogatory way. It shows how far you have to go back. If you're a crime fan, because you have to read Moll Flanders, you have to read Bleak House with Inspector Bucket, who's the first sort of detective in fiction, if you like, the first serious detective. So it stretches, the lineage stretches quite far back.
3: In this book, Barry, you've focused before on various different literatures, but in this particular British strand of it, you, you talk about it having gone through a disreputable phase. I mean, obviously... Bleak House was a fantastic example of detective fiction. What was this disreputable phase?
4: P.D. James used to say to me that she remember when she was not taken seriously as a writer, despite the fact that she was working for T.S. Eliot's publisher. She was still this kind of concession to popular fiction. Faber had one crime writer, which was Cyril Hare, who died, so they got one more, which was P.D. James. And with women like her, particularly in Ruth Rendell, they started to raise the literary game. And with her particularly, you started to treat crime fiction as literature. Before then, it was Penny Dreadfuls, Schilling Shockers. That was generally the thought.
3: But you, you're also quite rude about some crime writers. You don't rate them all, do you? I mean, there there are an awful lot of them now. It's the thing yes. that
4: people aspire
3: to because that's where the big bucks are, or so people think.
4: When I did Nordic Noir, I asked Horkin Nesser about the Scandinavian crime wave. He said, the problem is that you only see the good stuff. All the good stuff is translated. We have just as much crap as you do. But it's not being translated. Maybe it is now. Now there is such a thirst for new Nordic noir. Some not-so-good authors are being translated along with the Henning Mankles and Karen Fossums and people. There's still a lot of rubbish out there, one has to say.
3: One thing that emerges very clearly from both these is that as central to the tradition of crime in whatever, whether it's true crime or fictional crime, are the figures of the policeman, or woman, more recently, and the reporter... They're absolutely part of the persona of this. Duncan, this has a a very old tradition behind it. Yes,
2: I mean, the reporter crops up quite often in in crime novels as as well as in real life. I mean, Edgar Wallace has reporters in some of his fiction, and Edgar Wallace was a crime reporter himself for the Daily Mail before he realised he could make a slightly better living knocking out I think
4: a total of 130 mm-hmm. books, something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, I don't Large, I, largely unread today. One has uh, to, yes, I know. Because uh, you asked me earlier about not very good writers. One has to say he was one of them, Edgar Wallace. The Germans still revere him, and he's still in translation in German. here, he's largely unread. And I think he
2: probably did write too much. There's a story of somebody phoning up his secretary to speak to Edgar and, and the secretary saying I'm afraid he's working on a novel and the person saying oh, it's okay
4: I'll wait <laughs> that he did write them in three days. The other, the other change about journalists and detectives is that the loss of the consulting detective we're not really interested in private eyes anymore we don't accept the consulting detective like Sherlock Holmes so we do have something like the girl with the dragon tattoo with the central male character is a journalist. Yes We kind of buy a journalist now, even though most journalists don't get into quite as much trouble as Mikhail Blomkrist did in *The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo*.
3: Is that something that happens a lot in UK fiction as well, or is that particular to *The Dragon Tattoo*?
4: It's largely that because what absolutely rules in British crime fiction at the moment is the police procedural, and usually with a damaged, alcoholic copper, male and female. That kind of rules the roost now. Although the great thing about the British crime genre is how protean it is; it's changing it's now domestic noir, it's now griplet, it's now the unreliable narrator. It's all happened before. Everything is cyclical. But at the moment, the most popular crime novels are still featuring a detective, middle-aged, male or female.
3: Can we just go back to, I know this, this question will really irritate you, but is this noir? What do we mean by noir? I think of noir as being a particular aesthetic, a particular palette. And a lot of, some of the, books that you write about aren't of that palette. You spotted say. that, play. <laughs> well, How do you I, justify yourself?
4: <laughs> I, I contacted people like Alexander McCall Smith uh, through his agent saying, would he mind being in a book called Noir? Because Alexander McCall Smith is definitely not Noir. They are essentially cosy crime. And I thought, in order to get everybody in, I'm going to make the word Noir mean crime. So I'm stretching the definition as far as it will stretch.
3: Duncan, we talked about the reporter, but we haven't talked about the police officer and you have an example in your book of a poacher term gamekeeper, a famous crime reporter who actually started out as a as a police officer, which seems extraordinary now. I mean, that couldn't really happen today, could it?
2: Oh, oh. Chester Stern. Chester yes, Stern. yeah, that's right. He wasn't a police officer. He was, he was a press officer at oh, Scotland Yard. A press officer at Scotland Yard, was, which is almost the same thing. Yes, employed by uh, uh, the. Brian Hilliard, who used to edit Police Review, was a police officer, and then switched over and and did some terrific work at Police Review. Chester Stern, who was the head when, when I started doing crime, Chester was the head of the press office at Scotland Yard and then he was hired by the Mail on Sunday to be their crime correspondent so he had lots of inside sources. Nowadays I think you'd find that very unlikely. I mean relations between The police and reporters have completely broken down, certainly um, in terms of the Metropolitan Police, Scotland Yard, and reporters post-hacking, post-Leveson, post post the arrests of lots of journalists. It's very difficult for any police officer or detective to be seen now with a reporter having a drink. Which was standard practice twenty years ago, ten years ago even. Paint, That's all changed. You
3: paint this picture of a rather sort of junkety well quite quite an an exotic lifestyle that you led. Among well, other people you because you were friends with the police and you also Friends with some of the robbers, weren't you? And yeah, well, friends. yes, in yeah, commas. no,
2: exactly, <laughs> friends. <No, some> haven't <laughs> you are, been invited to some of the best they're, funerals they're, in history, they're, haven't you? I mean, as in life, you know, okay. there's lots of, lots of people that you, you become friends with and you like and trust and others that, uh, that you don't. Were you the only uh, person
4: at these funerals without a scar down your face? <laughs> <laughs>
2: John Weeks, who I interviewed, it was the Telegraph man in the 60s and onwards, said that they worked out that the average crime reporter drank eight pints a day Part of the job.
3: You Uh, look surprisingly well (laughs) done.
4: No, I I was at the limp end of this. That's the difference with the British crime writers, particularly. Generally speaking, they're a fairly abstemious bunch these days. Mm -hmm. Even people like Ian Rankin, who writes about an alcoholic copper. It's a much cleaner lifestyle we have, like journalists, of course. Journalists have cleaned up their act. Have they they have. they have. Whereas the, the great tradition of American changed. crime fiction is, is generally alcohol. So the great yeah. masters, Dashiell Hammett and uh, Raman Chandler, are alcoholics. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we ever really had that tradition. Certainly not like among the women writers over here, and, and women still largely rule the roost. They did in Britain's Golden Age, and they largely speaking still do today.
3: Do you think that there's an element of nostalgism in crime fiction, especially in UK crime fiction, that these detectives are all children of the Education Act, aren't they? They're sort of enabled, slightly embittered people who were once creations of the welfare state.
4: Well, actually, in a way... (laughs) With a bit of a chip on their shoulder. Crime fiction is kind of a snapshot in most countries of an early era. If you look at the Scandinavians, most of the writers are children of 1968, people like Henning Mankell who believed that society could be changed by a revolution the corrupt Swedish state would be overthrown. And that's the tradition over here is is slightly different. But crime fiction functions at that level, the nostalgia level. So you read um, The Girl on a Train today. You're still reading something that's a tradition that came from Dorothy Sayers and Marjorie Allingham. There's a nostalgia element, but also the fact that it's slightly dangerous and destabilizing. The reader's taken out of that comfort zone as long as the status quo is... Re-established at the end of the novel.
3: And part of the role of the detective is to look at what's happening from outside that particular milieu, isn't it? So, and they're often sort of slightly lower class than
4: the people yes. there, for example. Well, the they, they serve observing. all kinds of functions. They serve a kind of priestly function because people confess to them, generally yeah. speaking, and a the therapy function. So it's always good for the murderer to confess and say why they did something. But they're completely unreal. The policemen that Duncan will have encountered in his career are not like literary coppers, and in fact, I once said to P.D. James, you know, a, a published poet who's also a copper, and she pointed out to me she'd met several policemen who wrote poetry. So, who are we to argue with P.D. James? Do you agree yeah. with him, <laughs> Duncan? No, I
3: know some e-
2: extraordinary uh, <laughs> detectives. Uh, one who's become a friend, who is an expert on Bob Dylan, an expert on Harold Pinter, and an expert on the battle plans of Native Americans. And uh, if you had put all of that into a novel or a television detective, nobody would buy it. <laughs> they would say, uh, maybe just just have him knowing all about Bob Dylan, Duncan, <laughs> or, or or just Harold Pinter. And lots of people do have extraordinary hinterlands. And one thing I learned reporting o- over the years on both about criminals and police officers was never assume. I mean, a lot of criminals have done Open University degrees in prison, and Bobby King, who was a bank robber who I knew well, now dead, sadly, I once saw him in a pub where I was meeting him, and he was reading Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, and I mentioned this to another who's still alive, so I won't mention his name, Bankrupt. And uh, I said, oh, I saw Bobby King in the pub the other day. He was reading Virginia Woolf's To The Lighthouse. And he said, hmm, not her best. <laughs> <laughs> so never assume.
3: What is it that is particular about English Brit noir that distinguishes it from euro noir, which we could be a subsection of? From the
4: answer to that is simply one word, geographical. I think the fact that because Britain is, is a, a narrow septodile, if you like, America is this massive, sprawling canvas in which anything can happen. But uh, crime erupting in Britain, we, see, we feel our social order is fairly fragile, but it's there. And crime in Britain has a slightly more seismic effect in literary terms than it would in the Scandinavian countries. If it happens in Norway, they can go and get lost in the fjords. Where do you go here? You go from London to Manchester or from Birmingham to Leeds. Yeah, you go to the Costa del Crime. The well. Costa <laughs> del Crime, yes. It's that. You see, that's interesting because yeah. apart from writers like Martina Cole, that kind of criminal is not central to much crime, you know, the, the descendants of the Craze and the Richardsons, mm. if you like. It's mainly women, interestingly enough, who write about that particular kind of Cockney crime.
3: You make the point that, that there's a sort of suburbanness about it which is very different to the, the American cities, yes. that the, the, there is something irresolvable about the American city which can't be tied up and can't become part of a neat little procedural.
4: I once asked for an article a lot of women writers right across the board from the older generation to the younger generation, why women in particular were so good at writing crime and why women liked crime, not specifically in a British context, and they talked about the British love of order. The British have a love of order. I don't know if that's true or not. So we like to see it disturbed, but then we do like to see it f- settle into place again.
3: Duncan's book ends with the well, with a sort of nod to cybercrime. And that actually, it did strike me reading it, how difficult that's going to be to write about, in a way, because it all happens in some sort of a hyperspace. Do you think that's going to change the nature of detective fiction? It already has
4: fiction? with Lisbeth Salander in, in the Leek Stig-Larsham books. But her knowledge of cybercrime and her, her her use of technology is like a kind of superpower. Reading that book I said this woman is actually a superheroine. A she's a tiny elfin figure who can take a bullet in the brain and claw her way out of a grave. She can put down a six foot six man who can be tasered to the genitals and not feel it. But mainly she can do wonders and her approach to cybercrime and the internet becomes magic. It shades over from science into magic. And we don't need all the detail. We just need to know that that kind of thing can happen. Very much in TV crime now, that's very important. And, and it's not very visual. I, I think that's one of the
2: problems. The amount of films used in television you see nowadays where somebody's sitting at a keyboard and they haven't worked out a way to make that any more exciting than somebody sitting at a keyboard. And I think that's one of the problems.
0: Six by nine. That's smaller than the average parking space. So small that I can stretch both of my arms apart and touch both walls. Two steps, you're there.
3: 6x9 is a powerful new virtual reality story from The Guardian that can be downloaded onto your smartphone. The story confronts the psychological and physical horrors of isolation in the U.S. prison system. 6x9 allows you to step inside a virtual cell with real-life former prisoners. So, for the free app, go to the iTunes App Store or Google Play. You can also read supporting articles and listen to our 6x9 podcast on our site, theguardian.com. Just search for 6x9. This Guardian podcast is supported by Squarespace. If you want to build a website, you have many options. But if you want to build it beautiful, there's only one. Squarespace gives you the power of world-class design, So you can do more than create a website, you can set yourself apart. See why some of the world's most influential people, brands and businesses choose Squarespace. To start your free trial, visit squarespace.com forward slash guardian.
0: Donna Leon's Venetian sleuth, Commissario Guido Brunetti, has been following leads all over the city for a quarter of a century, hopping onto Vaporetti, skulking past ancient palazzos and stalking down murky alleys.
2: Che muore.
0: As his 25th mystery, The Waters of Eternal Youth, surfaces in UK bookshops, Leon began by introducing her leading man.
1: This is a scene from The Waters of Eternal Youth, the current Brunetti book. In this scene, Brunetti goes home after having spent a day dealing with a story about a young woman who suffers terribly, and it's about the relationship of mothers and grandmothers and and daughters. He has been reading Apollonius, and when he goes home he has that story very much in his mind. His steps took him towards San Giovanni Paolo, but he passed the basilica without stopping to go in. Down the bridge into Giacinto Galina, another bridge, another one, and there on the left was the back of the Chiesa dei Miracoli. He crossed the fourth bridge so that he could walk along its side, letting the alabaster walls soothe his spirit. He stopped in the tiny campo and studied the facade. He'd once heard of a singer who boasted that her high notes were higher than anyone else's. The church was more perfect than any other perfect church. His spirit was at peace by the time he reached home. Paolo was happy for his kiss of greeting, and the children pleased to have his full attention during dinner. As he ate his bean soup, knowing there was only lasagna to come, he wondered why this wasn't enough for so many people. Why did they have to have more? His innocent self asked. No sooner had the thought come than a more mature voice told him not to ask such stupid questions. Later, when Paula came back to place the deep dish of lasagna on the table, Brunetti looked at her, looked at his children, and said, How happy this makes me. His family smiled their agreement, thinking he meant the food, but it was the last thing on Brunetti's mind at that moment. After dinner, he continued with Apollonius, who finally approached the story of Jason and Medea. The myth had upset Brunetti from the first time he read it. It was Euripides he'd read then, With such chilling effect, when still little more than a boy and reading it in Italian, not yet able to attempt the Greek, he recalled how frightened he had been of Medea's rage as it soared up from every page. Hate is a bottomless pit. I will pour and pour. Stronger than lover's love is lover's hate. Her voice had struck some chord in him. He'd known these things were true, though he had never seen them not yet, in action. How often, later on, had he heard these confessions in his professional life? Medea had confessed in a way, I know what evil I am about to do, but even my realization of what will come after cannot stop my rage. By a conscious act of the will, he set the book aside before Jason arrived in Colchis, not tonight not with the memory of Manuela still fresh and not with tomorrow promising to be a day spent examining the life and death of Pietro Cavanes.
3: So Donna, in that extract, you have so many of his preoccupations. You get so much of a sense of the psychological territory that mm-hmm. that your characters occupy. You've got food, you've got architecture, you've got music and the sense of him very much as somebody who's invested in the location Venice, and Mm -hmm. Venice being almost a character in its own right.
1: Yeah, the city is a character, and in a way, too, his reading as a character because he's always reading the classics, and he always finds a way to make them opposite and make them timely. And very often in the books, I'm surprised at how he manages to do that, how he manages to be reading Cicero or Pliny. And it's current. It has to do with
3: the thing that he's dealing with. And I think this is suggestive of the
1: intelligence that he has.
3: I'm really interested in the way you're talking about him now. You, you say you were interested in the way he manages to do that. But mm-hmm. he's your creation. So it's you managed to do that. But I have a sense the way you inhabit him and he inhabits you. It's a relationship that's gone on, obviously, for 25 years yeah. or more, 25 books. Mm-hmm. It's like he's a real person to you.
1: Well, he's not. But he's a very malleable character. I can make him say and do what I want. The line is very unclear between where what I want to say and what he wants to do lies. But I, I feel particularly at ease with him and I sort of intuitively know what he will do and what he will say and how he will react to various circumstances.
3: The big difference, there are big differences between you and him. You're female, and American, and he is Italian Mm -hmm. (laughs) and a policeman. You're an Mm -hmm. academic, he's a policeman. So how did you presume ever to inhabit the mind of Commissario Guido Brunetti, a Venetian policeman?
1: Well, we live in a male world. The model of the world that we all have about us is male. And so I think it's very easy for a woman to pretend to be a man. Far more difficult is it for a man to pretend to be a woman. Leo Tolstoy pulled it off with Anna Karenina, but I don't think. Many writers fail to think the way a woman does. They think like men, like this guy who wants to be president of uh, the Philippines, who thought nothing unusual at saying in a press conference that when he saw the dead body of a woman who had been murdered by terrorists in the Philippines, he wanted to rape her too. He said that in public. And I I would offer this as a suggestion of the difference between a male mentality and a female mentality. So I think it is is easier for a woman to think the way or to imagine the way a man thinks than it is for a man to imagine the way a woman thinks because this guy is absolutely obtuse that he would think he could say something like that and not offend people.
3: You set him in his family and they're very, as we saw in that scene, they're very important to him, but he has very important women in his life. Mm -hmm. He has his wife, Paula, who mm-hmm. we see there serving food, and also his mother-in-law, mm-hmm. who who is sort of threaded through the novels and yeah. has become more and more fascinating in her own right. And she is the person who sets this particular plot in motion.
1: Yeah. She does with the help of her friend, but I think that these women are women whose intelligences and whose sensibilities he respects profoundly. And he's not afraid of asking them for or listening to their advice or their opinions.
3: And he's married up, hasn't he? He's 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 married
1: up, yeah, he's married into the aristocracy
3: and uh, into enormous bottomless wealth. And he was a poor boy who remembers his very different childhood. He hasn't
1: rewritten his past, or Uh, rewritten his past.
3: Paola is is bigger in this novel than she has been in others, isn't she? I really like her. Yeah,
1: because she understands this horrible situation, because it's a woman who is suffering, and perhaps that brings out some sort of maternal interest on her part.
3: So tell us about the situation.
1: The situation is that a young woman who is now 30, when she was 15, fell into the waters of a canal. And when she came out, when she was pulled out some minutes later, she had been under the water so long that the oxygen was cut off to her brain. And so she was damaged intellectually by this experience. She went in 15 and she came out seven or eight. The book is vague about that. And the book all through shows a kind of grotesque reality in what it is to have eternal youth. We live in a society which worships youth and thinks that we should all try to be more youthful, youthful, youthful. And here we have someone who has achieved eternal youth. She's always going to be seven years old, and there's nothing more horrible than that. So in a way, one sees the possibility that maybe eternal youth is is a curse, not a blessing.
3: Which is a very classical
1: theme. Yeah, forever. But in the classic tales, like the Strelbrugs in the third book of Gulliver, and in the Greek myth, I think it's Endymion, people have asked for eternal life, and they've forgotten the codicil of getting eternal youth. And then you see the horror visibly, because you see these these rotting things on the carcasses on the ground, which are eternally alive people who are 212. In her case, it's much more difficult to see the horror because you see this beautiful young woman. I was a sly devil to make her beautiful and and, and sweet and charming. So you overlook at the beginning the horror of her situation, that she is eternally
3: young. And one of the results of this particular scenario you've chosen is it's, it, it's almost not a whodunit anymore, is it? It's, it's sort of like you're over halfway through the novel until you find whether there is actually a, a crime yeah. involved. Yeah. Because we don't know. We don't know whether she just fell in or whether she yeah. was pushed or what happened. So, the
1: suspense, so there are two suspenses. There's a the suspense of whether she did fall in or whether she was pushed in. Did she fall or was she pushed? And there's the suspense of after 15 years time, will it be possible to find out if this were true, who could it have been who would have done something like this? It's difficult to find after 15 years.
3: So why did you choose to tell a story in a tradition, a crime tradition, which which you've cleaved to over 25 years? Mm-hmm. But you tell a story which actually flouts the tradition to some well, extent. It,
1: it does and it doesn't. I had been reading, rereading Ross MacDonald, who is the American crime writer, the crime writer I I adore and, and admire above all others. In his books, He often uses the same trope of the investigation of today leading back to events and caused by events which occurred 20 years in the past, 10 or 20 years in the past. And after I read a couple of his books, I had to write about them for my German publisher. I was taken with the idea of whether I could or I could not set up a book like this and try this this formula going into the past to investigate things to find out what is happening now and out of curiosity, the same curiosity, mild and wild curiosity, that impelled me to write the first book just to see if I could write a murder mystery. I wanted to see if I could use this technique.
3: Just to fill in people who don't know the story, which you've obviously told many, many times, how did you come to be a crime writer?
1: I was at an opera rehearsal of Donizetti's La Favorita at La Fenice with my friend Gabriele Ferro, who was conducting. He and his wife and I started talking about another conductor in the dressing room who had conducted there, and we started speaking badly of him, and soon he was dead, lying dead, and and I thought, wow, what a great idea for a murder mystery. I wonder if I could write a murder mystery, never, ever having thought of this at any time in the past. I thought, yeah, maybe if it started with the body here in the dressing room, and maybe, uh, why would he, who would, who would, so I wrote the book in about eight months, eight months, ten months, and I became very, very lucky when it was published. I was, You won I was a prize made, with yeah, it. Yeah, I won a
3: prize. A Japanese a prize. Which figure. It's sort of so Go. bizarre. whole
1: figure. Yeah, and then I got a contract for two books, so I had to write another book. And then I got another contract for two more, so I had to write two more. And then it was just beyond my control. I had to keep writing them.
3: But you have quite an ambivalent relationship with Italy, don't you? You don't allow your books to be published in Italian. Is no, that still my, true? No,
1: my relationship with, with Italy is in no way ambivalent. I love it. I adore it. I love them, and I adore them. However... The ambivalence comes in my relationship with Venice, which has become for vast portions of the year a difficult place, one might even say intolerable place to live because of the crowding. If there are 56 residents and 30 million tourists, it's almost like Mr. McCawber's formula. The result is misery for those who live there because one cannot live with that kind of crowding. It's like not being a lemming in the lemming drive. And so I spend a lot of the time from now until October I'll go there maybe for a week in the month, that's all.
3: Why do you not allow yourself to be published in Italian? Well, I've I've
1: said this in, in interviews, and I think that people find it hard to believe. If you bear in mind that I became successful when I was in my 50s, I was old enough then to have some idea about what happens to people given the circumstances of their life. Also I've worked in the opera world for a long time and I've seen a lot of people become famous or who have become famous. And I've yet to see anyone who's made better by the experience. And so by being where I live or where I spend a lot of my time, an absolutely anonymous person, I live much better
3: you are very critical of actually i wouldn't say you are the character good is because i'm not brunetti is very critical of the civic corruption mm-hmm. you've dealt with agnus day you've dealt with in this novel you deal with italy's attitude to migrants mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that it's a, a very well, current no, issue no
1: no i think that's to misread the book i merely point out in this book that quite the opposite i would say the book is about the tolerance of italy towards migrants because for years 20 years there have been what are called vous compra who are men from Senegal, tall, beautiful, wiry, attractive men who speak Italian very well, who have bonded with the Italians, who have humor, who have wit, who always look, they dress like Italians, who are polite, who are illegal immigrants into the country and who are selling things made by the mafia on the street. However, the Venetians treat them very well because they have an admiration for them because they're beautiful and because they work. The new immigrants that have been appearing in the last two years or so are also Africans, but they are different in their behavior. They're also darker physically, they're, they're thicker and they're shorter, but they haven't learned yet the grace of the vous compre. They They are, are more confrontational, they'll try to stop you on the street, they put their hands up in front of you to try to stop you, and they're begging for money, they're not working. And so they are not well received by the Italians because they sense in a very peaceful city, in a very peaceful culture, they sense an undercurrent of menace in these men. I do too. There's no risk, but their behavior is inappropriate to Italy. In a year or two years, they will have learned and they will continue to be there and they will maybe be selling things or maybe they will be asking for money on the street, but they'll be doing it with a smile and they'll be doing it with charm and grace and they will be completely accepted by the Italians.
3: You have um, Brunetti and Vianello, his sidekick, Mm -hmm. discussing them and Mm -hmm. they sort of go through all the tropes, say, oh, you know, Italy's been far too kind to these Mm -hmm. people. What is the extent to which you feel you're aerating the issue?
1: I am merely presenting what I have heard Italians say. Italians in the past were foreign to racism. It, It was not part of their culture. But in recent years, I have heard people say things that have surprised me and that have shocked me. There is a growing dislike of the number of immigrants in the country. A lot of this is provoked by the fact that an enormous amount of the supposed help that is being given to immigrants is in the hands of the mafia, and they're just in it for making the money. I have heard that the same is true of the church, that the church is making a fortune out of this business in immigrants. They have shelters where they are supposed to be, where no one lives, but the administrators are making a certain amount of money each day for each immigrant. So they're collecting and collecting. If they have 500 immigrants, they're making 35, 50 euros a day times 50 a day, and there's no immigrants. So the Italians, who are not fools, realize that this is just another ruse to pillage the public coffers. And their resentment is aimed at this situation the sort of defenseless victims of which doubly defenseless victims of this are the immigrants themselves because they didn't set up this system to pillage the public purse they're merely they're caught in the in the crossfire of the situation but i don't think that people stop long enough to realize this because they see lots of immigrants lots of money being used improperly and immediately think well maybe somehow the immigrants are to blame for this when in, in truth, they are not in any way.
3: And he's quite, he's quite a sophisticated commentator on all the things yeah. that happen. And he also has this thing that would be recognized from anybody who knows Italians, where he says, he has this lovely line, better to think like a Neapolitan and view it all as theater as fast as our leaders at play doing what they do best. Yeah. I don't take it very seriously because yeah. it's there.
1: Because they're just there to make as much money as they can and run, which is what most Italians think of
3: them. So there's a sort of shrug at the heart of his character, isn't there? There's a There has to be. You have to shrug to survive, otherwise you go mad. He's also a essentialist, which maybe contradicts the fact that there's a shrug at the heart of his character, particularly towards food. Mm-hmm. And I know you've done a recipe book mm-hmm. from the books, and somebody else has done a Venetian travel book, mm-hmm. according to the books, because he has this very, very physical relationship with his environment.
1: Yeah, but I think that's true of most Italians. They assume that they will eat well twice a week, twice a, a day rather than a week. I think that some people in some countries, particularly in America, think they'll eat well once a year, but anyway. No, he thinks that he should eat well twice a day. And he feels disgruntled if he doesn't eat twice a day well. And I think that many Italians share his, his dispiacere if he doesn't get to have two nice meals a day. He is essentialist as well. He notices people's clothing. He likes to wear fine clothing. He has a couple of suits that he loves above all others because they are the best, the best made of the best cloth. And he's very conscious of this. He's conscious of the clothing that his wife wears and he's always conscious of what women are wearing and how they look. But he's an Italian, so he is, he has a kind of a sophisticated sensibility towards beauty of any kind.
3: You've taught in English language university in Italy, was it? No, it was an American university. And, sorry, English language, I meant yeah. not not English, an American university in Italy. Mm-hmm. You have, But you obviously have Italian friends who yes. presumably read you. Do they Some, read you yeah, in someday. English? I mean, what is my, your relationship with your Italian friends? My best Italian friends, Franco and Roberta,
1: do not read English, so they haven't read the books, although I've got lots of ideas, and Roberta wrote the cookbook. I always ask Italians who have read the books, in English or German or whatever they've read them in, French or or Spanish. If what I say about Italy is true, because I don't care whether they like them or they don't like them, I ask them if what I say about Italy is true, and everyone has said yes, and I ask if my enduring love and respect for the country and the people comes through, and they have said yes. And that's enough for me. If a person wants to read really savage criticisms of Italy, Read the Italian writers, and I become, I don't know, the books become Bambi in comparison to what the Italians say about the country and about the system.
3: You've written one a year for 25 years. Yep. Are you going to go on? Do you think you could ever get tired of him? I will answer that question only by correcting your numbers. I've
1: written 26 and 26 years. The next one's finished.
3: So you're always one ahead of... As a a kind
1: of favour to my publishers who have been so good to me. The least I can do is give them a book by the 1st of
3: May so they have eight months to work on it. So you've written 26 in 26 years. How many more are we going to expect? Or might you suddenly decide to branch out and make Powell the (laughs) centre of a story? No, No, I thought
1: I might write romance. Because I've always wanted to use the phrase, he tore the silk blouse from her back. (sighs) No, I'll continue to write them as long as they're fun. And writing them now is still enormous laugh out loud fun for me and as long as that continues I'll continue to write. When and if it doesn't continue, then I'll stop. Because to continue to write under those circumstances, if I didn't like it, it would be profoundly dishonest to continue to write.
0: Donna Layon's The Waters of Eternal Youth is published by Atlantic in the UK and William Heinemann in the US. Barry Forshaw's Brit Noir is published by Pocket Essentials and Duncan Campbell's We'll All Be Murdered in Our Beds is published by Elliot and Thompson. Next week, we're getting into the swing of the festival season with reports from Lahore and Trinidad. You can find more literary discussion on The Guardian website, on iTunes, SoundCloud, or via your favourite podcast app. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. Until then, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Susanna Tresillian, see you next week. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.